They should have gone inside with an order like this. Don't act like you've never had that thought. And then you get up to the window, and have you ever had the, the drive through person say, hey, the person in front of you paid for your order, yours is free? Oh, well, thank you. Or I remember my wife and I were on vacation with our whole crew, and because uh, we take all of them. Every time we go on vacation, we tend to take our kids with us. We find that it's good for family bonding um, most of the time. But on one such uh, vacation, we all went out to dinner at, uh, or to lunch or wherever at, at Cracker Barrel because it's one of our favorite vacation spots to go because they just make good, unhealthy food. And it's just fun to eat at Cracker Barrel when you're on vacation. So we were there and we were eating and we were just having a good time. And, and uh, time came towards the end to, to settle and, and pay the bill. And the waitress came up and she said, somebody in the, the restaurant saw your family eating together and they decided to, to pay for your meal. Those acts are, are little tastes of grace that we get. And it pales into comparison with what we've just been singing about. It pales in comparison with, with this concept of what God has done for us through Christ at the cross. But as we turn to John chapter 4 this morning and we begin to watch Jesus pursue with this grace, this woman at the well, it's helpful for us to remember how important grace is for us. Grace is unmerited favor. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. And certainly there's no greater example of that than the grace that we've received in Christ from the Father. See, grace is that thing that, that we're uncomfortable with because grace disarms us. Grace robs us of our claim to have contributed to anything. But that's exactly what makes grace grace. None of us deserved the grace of God. But that's precisely what makes grace, grace. Turn to John chapter 4 if you're not already there. John chapter 4, we pick up in verse 1. We've left off with this interaction. You remember Jesus' disciples and Nicodemus, or Nicodemus's, uh, John the Baptist's disciples, rather, were both baptizing together at the same time. And there was some conflict because John's disciples were a little jealous for their rabbi there. So we pick up in John chapter 4 and we read this. When Jesus had learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John. Remember, we read about that last week, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples. They were baptizing under his authority on his behalf. He, Jesus, left Judea in the south there and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. Now, I don't know how helpful this map is, especially for you in the back, probably not very. But again, if you open up your Bibles to the back of your Bibles, you should have a map that looks something like this in most of your Bibles. And you'll see there in the south, you'll see the region Judea there. And that's where Jesus had been. It's down near the body of water down there. That's the Dead Sea. There's the river, the tributary that goes up from there all the way north up into the Sea of Galilee. Jesus was wanting to leave the region of Judea in the south and go north to Galilee. And the reason is, is because Jesus shrewdly perceived the fact that the Pharisees were going to try to create division in and to widen any division that might have existed between Jesus' disciples and John's disciples. You remember last week we talked about the importance of like-minded ministry partners and that we need like-minded ministry partners in the area. Y'all, sometimes we can get so fixated on second-tier, third-tier issues that we can allow division to creep in between brothers and sisters in Christ that can render our impact in our community far less powerful than it would be if we stayed united on what really matters, which is the true biblical gospel. 
So Jesus recognizes, hey, the Pharisees are going to try to divide us. We need to take care of this. We need to move on from here. So Jesus wants to go north to Galilee. And then we come to verse 4. And in verse 4, very simply, easy to look over it, it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. You'll notice Samaria is right in the middle of the map there. Samaria, you may be familiar with the Samaritans. You may remember the parable of the good Samaritan even. You may know that the Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. But why? Where did that come from? Well, the Samaritan people first emerged uh, back during the the time of the Assyrian uh, conquest, when Assyria came in and conquered the northern kingdom. So you remember, the the United Kingdom of Israel, you had David and Solomon and, and Saul reigning over the United Kingdom of Israel. But then after Solomon's death, you recall there were two competing voices for the throne, and that caused the nation to split. And you had the, the tribes to the north become Israel under Jeroboam's leadership, and then you had King Rehoboam in the south. Well, the tribes to the north, if you remember reading through the list of the kings, and this king did evil, did what was evil, did what was evil, did what was evil. The tribes to the north were a very, very wicked, wicked sect of Israel. And as a result, God brought judgment. We've been reading about that some in our daily Bible reading in Isaiah and Jeremiah. God brought judgment against the tribes to the north through the people of the Assyrians. When the Assyrians came in and and conquered the tribes to the north in Israel there, one of the things they did was they opened up the doors and they said to all of the nations around, hey, there's great real estate here. Why don't you come in, Babylon? Why don't you come in, all these foreign nations, and and settle here? And and you can have a, a, a prime piece of real estate in the promised land. I don't know if they had billboards up that said that or anything, but they were wanting to get more foreign peoples into Israel, and that's exactly what happened. Well, what in the meantime was going on there with the people of God in Israel was some were not driven out of the land through the Assyrian conquest, but they remained behind. And there were those that remained behind that when Babylon and others came in, in fact, here's the the verse that describes all the different nations here in 2 Kings 17, when all these people came in, when when they came in, those Israelites that were remaining, they forsook God's command that they should not intermarry with these foreign nations lest they be led astray into idolatry. And the Israelites that remained there in the Samaritan region began to intermarry with these Gentiles. So they they began to have godless marriages with these foreign nations that came in. Their descendants became known as the Samaritan people. That's where the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans originated from. And there was an us versus them mentality. The Samaritans said, we're only going to hold to the first five books of the Bible. We're not going to believe anything beyond the Pentateuch, the books written by Moses. The Samaritans claimed that the true place of worship, as we'll see in a couple weeks, was in Mount Gerizim and not down in Jerusalem. The Samaritans denied the legitimacy of the Jerusalem temple. The Samaritans opposed, Ezra 4.17 tells us, the rebuilding of Jerusalem post-exile. The Samaritans were possibly even involving the the man Sanballat, who was one of the leading voices opposing the rebuilding of Jerusalem there. He was likely one of the Samaritan people himself. Josephus, the ancient Jewish historian, even reports that they were allies with the Greeks during the reign of Antiochus IV. Antiochus IV was a bad guy for a lot of reasons. One of the main reasons was Antiochus IV went into the temple in Jerusalem and he sacrificed a pig on the altar in Jerusalem. Also set up an an idol to Zeus in the temple there. So the animosity, you can begin to to understand some of the animosity between the Jewish people 
and the Samaritan people. And that's important as a backdrop for what takes place in John chapter 4. Against this backdrop, we read verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, it wasn't geographically necessary that he had to pass through Samaria. He could have gone around. He could have crossed over the Jordan River, gone up the eastern side of the Jordan River, crossed back over after he got past Samaria, and gone up to Galilee. Some commentators will suggest, well, that's the, the, what he could have done, and so this is why it's significant that he went through Samaria, because he chose this was unique. Listen, I, I don't think it was unique. What's the shortest distance between two points? A straight line. Guess where a straight line takes you? Through Samaria. So the uniqueness is not the fact that he went through Samaria. That was common. Most of the Jewish people going from Judea up to Galilee would have taken this same route. It would have been quite the ordeal to cross over the Jordan River, go up the eastern side, and cross back on the north end. So this was the common route of traffic. It wasn't unique that he did go through Samaria. So then the question becomes, why does John, under the inspiration of the Spirit, record that it was necessary for him to go through Samaria. I'm guessing this morning when you came to church, if you've been here multiple times, if you're a visitor, you took a brand new route here, right? You've never been here before. But if you've been here multiple times, my guess is you took the same route to get here that you usually take. You didn't have to wake up this morning and look at your wife and say, it's necessary that we take the same route to church this morning that we always take to church, right? She would look at you funny and be like, duh, why are you bringing that up? That's a little about why we have to answer this question. Why does John make note of this? If this was the common route, why, why bring it up in the first place? John is unique amongst the gospel writers in that he is the most theological of all of the gospel writers, of all four. And in part because John had the benefit of writing much later. He wrote the, the gospel of John probably in, close to the end of the first century A.D., so John had the, the, the advantage of time on his side to think through all that Jesus had done and all that he witnessed Jesus do and to, to think theologically and not just chronologically about what Jesus had done. So John is intentional about what he does here. And here, I think he's pointing out something significant theologically about us. What was it? Well, I think it has to do with this. In John chapter 5, verse 30, which we'll get to in a few weeks here, we read this, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I, and here's it, here it is, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here you have Jesus in John 5.30 saying, I can do nothing on my own, meaning I'm never going to go rogue. I'm not going to go do something that is not in keeping with the will of the Father. Why? Because he makes it explicit here. He says, all I'm about is doing the will of the Father. I think that's what John's showing us in John 4, 4. He had to pass through Samaria. Why did he have to pass through Samaria? Well, we're going to find out. He's got a divine appointment where he's going to meet this woman at the well. And through a conversation with the woman at the well, spoiler alert, things are going to go well eventually. And she's going to end up being a key voice that goes back into Samaria and tells other people about Jesus. More people are going to come to Jesus and believe through her testimony and eventually his testimony. So why did he have to pass through Samaria? Because this was what God willed for his son. This is what God wanted Jesus to do. Because God wanted Jesus to have an encounter with this woman at the well in Samaria that was going to change not only her life, but the lives of all the people that she would live with and, and, and be exposed to when she went back into her village to say, Come and see who I found. Y'all, in so many ways, as we think about this verse, it was necessary 
for the son to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. This is a microcosm of the whole gospel. And here's why. Before it was necessary for the son to pass through Samaria, it was necessary for the eternal son of God to take on flesh and come into creation. You see, what we see in John 4.4 is just a small glimpse into what took place in the eternal counsel of the Godhead. Something that none of us were privy to. But we see the evidence of through the obedience of the Son. This obedience is, is amazing. Something that should cause us to be in wonder, in awe, in, in worship. That the Son, the eternal Son of God, would obey the Father to the point of coming for our salvation. Our first point this morning is this. Marvel at that. It's not a word we use very often, but marvel at the son's humble obedience. It means to be in awe, to be amazed about the humble obedience of the eternal son of God. Many of you are probably, I'm I'm guessing, familiar with the concept of the Trinity. The Trinity is the doctrine that states that we serve and worship one God who exists eternally as three equal persons. One God, three persons. Those three persons being the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The word Trinity is not found anywhere in your New Testaments or your Old Testament. You're not going to find it written there, but the concept is there repeatedly. One example is when Jesus is baptized by John. Jesus is baptized, so you have the Son of God there at his baptism. As he's baptized, you hear a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. You've got the voice of the father from heaven as Jesus concurrently is being baptized. And then what happens? You have the spirit of God descending like a dove to rest upon him, to anoint him. So you have son, father, spirit, all right there in the baptism of Jesus. In fact, even though the Trinity is not mentioned specifically in the Bible, there are over 100 New Testament passages alone that give us a glimpse of the Trinity at work. Maybe you don't think a whole lot about the Trinity, but even if you don't, my guess is, not my guess, my, my, my confidence is, that it impacts your relationship with God on a regular basis. Take prayer, for example. When we pray, the Bible is clear with us that we pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. And so every time you pray, you are interacting with the doctrine of the Trinity. Or think about the, the, the roles of the Trinity in our lives. The Spirit leads us, guides us into all truth, right? The Son intercedes for us. That's Hebrews chapter 7. says he always lives to make intercession for us. And what does the Father do? Well, I looked for a word that rhymes. So maybe the Father feeds us, right? The Spirit leads, the Son intercedes, the Father feeds. No, the, the Father answers those prayers. Every good gift comes from the Father. And so the Trinity is part of our life. And here we see the Trinity at work. And there's two ways in which we can think about the Trinity. Now come with me for a minute into a little bit of the the deeper waters of of John here. Because the Trinity we can think about in one of two ways. The first way is called this, the imminent Trinity, or the ontological Trinity. Ontological means the the being, the existence. The the Trinity as the, the, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exist together amongst themselves from eternity past. This is the imminent Trinity. Now, the imminent Trinity we can think about this way. In the imminent Trinity, you have the Father as the the eternal begetter of the Son, the one and only begotten Son. This is known as the eternal Sonship of of Christ. 
there never was a time when Jesus was not the Son of God. That means that the Father has always been the source, so to speak, not origin. The Son was never created, but the source, the, the begetter of the Son. Now, that's an eternal relationship. How does that work? Above my pay grade, I have no idea. But the Father eternally begets the Son. The Son, then, and, and we're not breaking any new ground here, then, logically, would be the one that's eternally begotten by the Father. The one eternally begotten by the Father, which then leaves us, what about the Spirit? Well, the Spirit is the one that eternally proceeds from the Father. So you have the Father as the, the source or the fount, fountainhead, not in a superior nature, because they're all equally God. But my point in the imminent Trinity here is there are differences in roles within each member of the Trinity, even in the ontological or imminent Trinity. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds. This impacts everything. Because at some point in the eternal counsel of the Godhead, when? I don't know, especially when you consider the God exists outside of time. But at some point, in our minds, point, let me use that word if I can, just so that we can wrap our minds around it, it was decided that the Son would take on flesh and come here and live a perfect life, perfectly obedient to the Father, and go to the cross and die on the cross for our sins so that we can be forgiven and rise from the dead so that we can live with him forever. At some point in time, that took place in the divine, imminent, ontological trinity. And these roles bear that out. The Father as the one who eternally begets, the Son who is eternally begotten, and the Spirit who proceeds from the Father, and eventually also the Son. The second way we can think about the Trinity, if you're still with me, just bear with me, I pray, I promise you points two and three are lighter. But the second way is this, the economic Trinity. What is the economic Trinity? Well, if the imminent Trinity is the Trinity as the Father, Son, and Spirit exist together, apart from outside of creation and redemptive history, the economic Trinity is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as they appear and work in creation and redemptive history. And so when we think about the economic trinity, here's what we think. We think about the Father sending the Son to redeem lost humanity. Then we think about the Son obeying or submitting to the Father and securing our redemption. This is what we're looking at in John 4, 4. The Son submitting to the Father's will. And then third, we see the Spirit applying redemption to believers as the Spirit works through regeneration and, and giving life. So this is the economic trinity. So you have the imminent trinity and you have the economic trinity. And these are both different and yet they both work together. They both mirror one another in some ways. And so here we see it was necessary that the son should go through Samaria. And the reason was because of these relationships, the relationship of the son, the eternally begotten one, to the father. The relationship of the son, the sent one, to the Father who sent the Son. J. Scott Harrell says this, while there may be hiddenness, incomprehensibility, and even darkness in God's self-revelation, not darkness in evil, darkness in our ability to, to comprehend and understand, there are no masks. He says, I presuppose that the economic trinity, the, the Father sends, the, spirit, the, the Son goes, the Spirit applies, I presuppose that the economic trinity as revealed in the Bible accurately represents to finite creation, that's us, who and what God is, but at the same time, 
the economic trinity is by no means all that is God. And so what we see in the outworking of our salvation in the economic trinity is a glimpse into the relationship with the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and, and if you're sitting there going, man, this is giving me tired head, me too, okay? Because this is, this is we're, we're, we're playing in, in the realm of the infinite now as finite creatures. Why belabor this point? Because I think John 4, 4 communicates so much more than we first realize. This is a glimpse of the outworking of all of this, okay? Maybe this passage here will, will help us because I think this is another glimpse into the economic trinity because here we see Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself willingly, right? Willingly. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient. Obedient to who? To the Father. To the point of death, even death on a cross. So at some point, the, the Father decreed and the Son willingly agreed that it was necessary not just for him to pass through Samaria, but for him to enter into creation. Not just so the woman at the well could be saved, but so that you would be saved and I could be saved. The son's humility should leave us saying, why, why would you do that? How could you do that? That's what makes grace, grace. Unmerited favor. It's not that we were sitting here as worthwhile objects of his affection to that level. But he chose to of his own decree, of his own will. Why? Because he loved us. So what? What does this, all this Trinity talk matter? Let me give a, a few thoughts here. Number one, notice as the Son submits to the Father, let me emphasize and stress this 100% as much as I can. There is no difference in nature. This is not an inferiority of the Son to the Father. This is a difference in role. The Son submits to the, to the Father not because the Son is less than the Father. The Son is fully God just as the Father is fully God. They just have different roles within the Trinity. The son submits himself to the leadership of the father. Here, Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. There's a reason why, church, we still boldly preach that without embarrassment. Because what we are proclaiming there is not an inferiority in personhood, but a difference in role. Just as the son submitted to the father, the way that God has designed marriage is that the wives submit to the husbands. It's one way the Trinity impacts our daily lives. How else does it impact our daily lives? How about just our general obedience for all of us in the room? You have the son submitting himself in obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. How many times do we grumble about obeying our Heavenly Father when he's called us to do something that we just don't want to do? The, the Trinity serves as a good example for us in that regard. I've already touched on prayer. The Trinity impacts our prayer life. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. But I think even just more so, and that's in keeping with this point, just to humble us and to cause us to appreciate what God has done for us a little bit more, maybe than we did earlier. Amazing grace. That's what makes grace, grace. Marvel at the Son's humble obedience. Well, the text continues. We get past the, the getting to Samaria, and he got to Samaria. He comes to the town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And tradition had now held that then, as a result of that, Jacob's well was there. Was this actually Jacob's well? It's, it's possible. 
Or could this be a well that tradition simply held this is Jacob's well? Also possible. Either way, this was known at the time as Jacob's well. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey. Notice that. You get a glimpse into the humanity of Jesus here. He's fully God and fully man. Jesus is tired. My wife and I once in California, we went for a walk and we were estimating that the walk would take about three miles, four miles. It ended up a seven-mile walk. It was the worst, aside from the company that I was sharing. I was wiped when I got back. I was exhausted, right? Jesus is walking, walking a long distance. He's tired, so he sits down. He sits down there besides the well. It was about the sixth hour. Okay, that's noon. Bear that in mind. Tuck that away. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, a Samaritan city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews, John's commentary, have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, so Jesus is here. Jesus is now in Samaria. This is a zoomed-in map from what we saw. And he's there. You see the, the faint brown line at the bottom going north with the arrow. He's moving from Jerusalem and Judea up to Samaria, and he stops here. He's tired. He sits down by the well. But remember, this is not happenstance. This is a divine appointment. He had to pass through Samaria. And there at the well is this woman that he meets. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said, give me a drink. Now, this would have been a shocking turn of events here. And the reason why it would have been so shocking is something that might elude us initially. Because if, if you're out and about and, and you stop and ask a, a lady for something, it's, it's not going to cause people to say, what in the world? What's going on? Two things to bear in mind. Number one, she was a Samaritan woman. Okay? Remember Jews and Samaritans and the tension that exists there. We're, we're seeing the tension right now in the Middle East that's, that's risen up between the Jews and the Palestinians. Now, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't have rockets during Jesus' era, but the tensions were still pretty high nonetheless. Think of that kind of animosity towards one another. This was a, a hatred for one another that they had. So for Jesus to engage her and to ask her for a drink would have been shocking, but it went beyond just the racial tension that may have been there between the Jew and Samaritan. There was also a, a a ceremonial cleanliness element at work here. And that's John's commentary. He says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now that's not probably the best rendering of that because the disciples had gone into a Samaritan town to buy food. So that would have involved dealings with Samaritans. What's implied here is Jews don't use the dishes of Samaritans. That's kind of literally what the text is saying here. And what's the, the reason for that is because that would have rendered Jesus unclean according to temple tradition. Not the law, because what? Jesus never broke the law. But according to temple tradition, their hatred for the Samaritans, they would have said this would render Jesus unclean to drink from this Samaritan woman's uh, vessel that she had to draw water with. So she's shocked for that, but the other reason is because of who this woman was. Remember, I noticed she's there at the sixth hour. What time did I say the sixth hour is? 12, middle of the day. If, have you ever been to Arizona before in the middle of the day during the summer? It's not a time you want to be out doing heavy labor. This is a similar climate to that. Midday, noon, she's drawing water from a well, having to carry the jar there, carry it back full. Why? Well, this isn't the normal practice. Normally, women would have gotten up early in the morning and gone together as a pack, and they would have gone to the well, and they would have drawn the water from the well in the coolness of the day and gone back home. Or later in the evening, she's there in the middle of the day. Why? She didn't want to see anyone. She didn't want to be around anyone because she was a societal outcast. And we're going to find why 
in a, a couple weeks when we look at the text, but it, it essentially it boils down to this. This is an immoral woman, and she carries that reputation with her. So again, for Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, to talk to her, this is breaking all kinds of traditional concepts and norms. This is unmerited favor. This is grace. The cost of engaging with this woman was high because of what people would have thought. And the benefit she offered Jesus was null. But that's what makes grace grace. He had to pass through Samaria. Second point this morning is this. See yourself in the woman at the well. See yourself in the woman at the well. We live in a world that, by and large, especially in our culture and in, the, in this region, where people probably consider themselves, and, and maybe some of you in the room do as well, to be good people. I'm a good person. Let me ask a question this morning. How much grace does a good person need? Should I think about the game that we so often play when we think, well, I, I'm better than that person over there. Let's get real. Let's, let's hit home in, in, our, in our feelings right now. The terrorists in, in Palestine who are shielding themselves with women and children, do you need less grace than they do? See, y'all, this is the thing. We can't cheapen grace. If you've got two dead bodies in front of you, can you tell which one's deader than the other one? Or if you've got two people that are dead in front of you, which one needs life more? Y'all, before Christ, all of us, what does the Bible say? Ephesians 2, come on now. It says we are what? We're dead in our trespasses and sins. Your sins are different than my sins, different than the sins of Hamas, different than the sins of Osama bin Laden. I get that. I'm not suggesting that they're all the same sin, but the, the, the need for grace is the same for all of us because we're all dead and need to be made alive. And so we got to stop thinking, well, I'm a good person. I needed less grace than someone else. It's nonsense. We all needed the full grace of the full wrath of God poured out on the Son for our forgiveness. That's the only thing that brings us from death to life. The fact that we live in suburbia and drive nicer cars and live in nice homes and we're safe because we don't have rockets hitting around doesn't do anything for us in the eyes of God. If you aren't in Christ, you are as dead as the worst of the worst in the world. There's nothing inherently good within us. Isaiah says our good deeds are filthy rags before God. When we bring our goodness to God and say, God, are you, are you impressed with me now? Because look, it, I'm better than this person. It's revolting to him. The only hope for us is the full grace of God poured out for us. Just like this woman, society looked at this woman and said, she's not worthy of our fellowship. She's not worthy of our company. She's not worthy of our time. Y'all, we're no better off. The Bible, here's what the Bible describes us as. The Bible says in Romans 5, we are weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. 
Romans 6.20, we are slaves of sin. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, this is what I was talking about earlier. We are dead in our trespasses. We were the sons and daughters of disobedience. We were children of wrath, he says, by nature. Who we were. Titus 3, 3, we were foolish, disobedient, slaves to various passions. And that's why this verse is so important. For by what? Come on, for by what? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of what? Works, lest anyone should boast. That's what makes grace grace, y'all. Is who we were, weak, ungodly, sinful enemies of God, children of wrath, sons of disobedience, foolish, dead, slaves to our passions and our sins. We needed grace. Every single one of us. The same grace, every single one of us. What was your encounter at the well, I wonder? I hope you've had one. Where you first encountered the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ. You know, my, my background, my story is this. I, uh, I grew up going to a Christian high school. And, uh, man, I, I, I was not a remarkable athlete in any stretch of the imagination. Shocking, I know. I know, but get over the shock if you can with me. I, I, I mean, I was, I, was, I was just average. I was, I was an average guy, except for one thing. I, I, I knew I wanted to do what I'm, I'm getting to do right now, and that, that, that's, that's just God's kindness to me. I, I've always wanted to be a pastor um, for different reasons. Anyways, so my senior class, being creative as they were, voted me most likely to become a pastor. So <laughs> there you go. The most likelies in the yearbooks, there's an example of one that they got right, and it wasn't a hard one. It was pretty easy, low-hanging fruit. But here's the deal, y'all. They didn't, they didn't get it. Because they may have looked at me, and from the outside, they may have said, well, there's a, a, a good kid, and he wants to go into ministry, so he's most likely to be a pastor. At that time, I was dead. I was a weak, ungodly, sinful enemy of God. I just knew how to play the game. I knew how to put on the facade. I was a Pharisee. Until God saved me at a, a summer camp. And honestly, I, I went to the summer camp expecting that, you know, that, that camp high that you get, that the feeling good and you love the worship and everything's fun. And I, I didn't feel any of it. And I just got angry with God that whole week. Until the final night when Jesus came for me at my well to show me in your self-righteousness you can't be saved because you're a good person. You're fooling everyone else, but you haven't fooled the one that matters. You need to be reconciled to God, and no amount of self-righteousness is going to do that. Your pridefulness, your arrogance. And he saved me on that night. We've got a lot left in the story of the woman at the well in John 4, but just I want you to see his grace his unmerited favor in looking at this woman and engaging her, talking with her. Y'all, there may be other people in your life that God has brought into your life that he wants you to, to be the voice of grace in their life. Maybe there's somebody who you know in your life and you're thinking, man, it's going to be messy for me to get involved with that person and tell them about Jesus. But that's what Jesus did for you. 
You may look at somebody else and say, you know what? I just, I'm, I'm so angry at that person because of what they did and how they offended me. I don't know if I can look past their sin against me in order to point them to Jesus. But that's what Jesus did for you. Maybe there's somebody else who's just a societal outcast and you just think, well, it's just going to be awkward to try to pursue that person and point them to Jesus. But that's what Jesus did for you. It may not look like it at first, but this request for a drink from this woman was the moment she encountered more grace than she had ever known before. And I hope you've known that grace too. Verse 10, quickly in our final point, verses 10 through 15 Jesus turns the situation on its head. He says to her, if you knew the gift of God who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Remember, they're at a well, a well that was fed perhaps by a spring, but there's a difference even in that in living water, the, the picture of just a, a gushing, flowing spring or, or, or a river there. And the woman said to him, sir, you've got nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So she's staying on the, the, the physical plane, the literal level. You remember Nicodemus did the same thing. Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. How can a man enter into his mother's womb again? So let's not slight this woman because the trained Pharisee, the teacher of Israel, missed it just like she did. She says, well, how can you, you don't have anything to draw water with. What are you talking about living water? This, by the way, this is Jacob's well. This is a famous well. It's a famous hole in the ground. What do you, what are you, are you better than Jacob? And we're sitting there going, yes, yes. That's it, pull the thread. But notice Jesus doesn't launch into a doctrine of his identity at this point. He doesn't sit down, well, it's funny that you ask. Because actually, yes, I am. Why don't you grab your Bible and let's, uh, let's open up and let me give you a Christology really quick. He doesn't do that. He keeps pursuing, keeps pulling at the thread to help her understand her need. That's what he's doing here in this final section. Developing her need for grace. He said to her in response, he doesn't answer the question necessarily, he says, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. She knew that. She had to come every day or every couple of days to get water. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Thirst is a universally relatable feeling, isn't it? All of you know thirst. You've experienced it. You know what it is to just be tired and hot and weary and longing for water to feel satisfaction. Well, thirst in the scripture is so often connected to our desire for God. Psalm 42, 2, my soul thirsts for God. Psalm 63, 1, similarly, my soul thirsts for you. Speaking to God there. Matthew 5, 6, Jesus says, Anyone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness will be satisfied. So Jesus seizes on this concept of thirst, and, and he takes the scenario here with the woman having asked her for a drink of water, and he flips it on its head to try to get her to understand that she is a thirst for something that he can give to her. Originally, it was all about, hey, can she give him water? Now he's trying to get her to see there's a water that you need that's greater than this water. You drink from this water, you're going to be thirsty again. 
anyone who drinks from the water that I give him will never thirst. And that is what leads to her question. You have nothing in your hands to be able to draw from in this well. What, what are you going to do? She misses it. And Jesus is patient and comes back. And again, it says, whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. See, she's, part of the problem is she was missing the, the source of the water. She was still thinking about the well. And Jesus is saying, I have water for you. You're thirsty, thirst for me. Thirst for something that I can provide for you. And if you will, I will provide it for you. And the water that I give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Against this background, water has been talked about a lot in John. In fact, we've talked about the verse from Ezekiel chapter 36. Ezekiel 36, 25, which says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from your uncleanness, and your idols I will cleanse you from them. And here he's talking about water again, and there's the concept of cleanliness, and there's the concept of life with water, and Jesus is offering her something better to satisfy a need that she doesn't even realize at this point that she has. But here's the thing. This is water that wells up to eternal life. Jesus doesn't say, anyone who comes to me who's thirsty, I'll give him a cup of water, and it'll satisfy that initial thirst that he's got. No, Jesus says, I'll, I'll keep satisfying it. I'm going to provide a, a, a source of living water, and that's never going to run dry. So every time you need it, you can come back and you can find satisfaction. Every time you need more, you can guarantee that there's going to be more. This is Jesus offering her unending, unlimited grace if she can see her need for it. Church, I, I think so often we think about grace and we think about the moment of our salvation. And that's wise and that's good and that's right and we should. But let us not fall prey to the error that that's the last time that we ever have experienced the grace of God. God's grace continues far beyond the cross for us. God's grace continues in ways that we can't even imagine. And so third point this morning is this. I want us to keep watch for God's varied grace. If you're in Christ, you've come to him. He's given you this fount of living water that's welling up in you. Even since that idea there, right? The progress of something welling up. I like to think that at the moment of salvation, it started its, its filling process in us, right? And it's welling up and it's coming. And what's the end? The end is eternal life. See, the grace that saves us is the grace that sanctifies us and the grace that delivers us. It's all grace. And so we're never sitting back going, well, thanks for the grace, God. Now it's on me. It's always grace in our lives. And so I want us to think about the different ways that you have experienced grace in your life. Here's just a few for you to think about this morning. You got to church this morning. You got in your car. You buckled your seatbelt. And you started to, to press and, and depress the accelerator and the, the brake, right? And, and you made it from point A to point B. What got you here this morning? It's not your car. It's the grace of God. What else is grace in your life? How about hearing your kids laugh, being able to go and watch your kids play soccer on a soccer field like I was able to do yesterday and watch my son run around and, and have fun on a soccer field. It's a grace of God. That's unmerited favor. The job that you have is a grace of God. It's a gift that he's given you. Your cognitive ability, your ability to, to read is a grace of God. Your ability to track with the sermon is a grace of God. The synapses that fired in your brain to allow you to sit and stay balanced in your chair right now, it's God's grace at work in your life. 
your health in general, God's grace. We want to get down to the, the, the very basic, the air that you're breathing, your diaphragm expanding and contracting right now is not because you're a good person. It's because God is a great and gracious God. Those are just the, the, the minutia. Those are the things we overlook on a regular basis. How about the grace to see victory over sin in your life? How about the grace to see a lost loved one come to faith in Christ? How about the grace to see your marriage strengthen over time? How about the, the grace that you might have a peace in the face of the chaos that's all around us? How about the grace when you experience forgiveness from a brother or sister in Christ? How about the grace when you forgive a brother or sister in Christ? There are so many ways God's grace shows up in our lives. It is welling up within us to, the what, to what point, to what end, to the point that we will eventually be with him in eternity. And what gave us that grace is what we're about to celebrate right now. What allowed us to have access to this grace? Unmerited favor, seen most clearly and tangibly at the cross. That's the key to grace. If you're out here this morning and you're thinking to yourself, man, I, I, I don't know this grace. The good news about what makes grace grace is that there's no prerequisites to coming to know the grace. What does that look like? It looks like this, acknowledging your sin before a holy God, confessing that you have fallen short of his perfect standard, recognizing the, the, the weight of that sin means that you are, are facing an eternity of judgment for that sin under his wrath, because he's a holy God, and for him to stay holy, sin must be punished. But then beyond that, recognizing that God made a, a provision for you to not have to suffer that punishment and that wrath. That provision is Christ on the cross. As we talked about earlier in this sermon, he sent his son, who had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through the trial, he had to pass through the beating, he had to pass through ultimately the crucifixion. Jesus died on the cross for your sin so that you can be forgiven, so that God's wrath against you was poured out on his son. So when he looks at you, he sees no need to punish you anymore because that punishment has been poured out on Christ. But not only that, Jesus rose from the dead three days later so that you can live with him forever. If you want that grace, this morning it looks like repenting from your sins, which means I'm, 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 it's a, an about face. It's a, an old military word that means to, to turn around. I'm going to turn from my sins, living for myself, and I'm going to believe, I'm going to put my faith in that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and rose again so that I can live with him forever. If you'll do that this morning, you will come to know that grace. The living water. The ushers are going to come forward here in just a few minutes and, or just a few moments and pass out the elements here. And as they do, there's going to be music playing. This is a time to think about what we're doing. We want to be careful not to take communion in an unworthy manner as the Bible warns us.
So there's a couple things to think about. Number one is that we make sure that we don't have unconfessed sin in our lives. Christians, this is for us as a church family. But make sure that you spend this time as the elements are passed. If, if, if you will, like David in Psalm 139, say, Lord, search me and know me and see if there's any grievous way in me. And if you see the sin, if you recognize the sin, confess the sin. Second danger is unconversion. If you are an unbeliever and you know that you are not saved this morning, please let these elements pass by because the Bible warns us against taking the elements in an unworthy manner. This is something for believers to do together. And then the third danger is taking it in an unintentional manner, that we're just going through the motions. And so let's be thoughtful about the grace that these elements represent as they're passed in the music place.
want to convey the wrong thing with the weightiness of this. There's great joy in what we're about to do in this too. That joy that I talked about at the, the beginning there, that joy that, and the day is secure for us. When the one we're about to remember together is with us. And so we take and eat this with a somberness, but yet not without joy. Joy for what it means. The Apostle Paul says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given, given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand together and pray as we're dismissed. God, the, the song that is coursing through my mind is that, that old hymn, Grace, Grace. God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sins. What a glorious reality that is. But it's a grace that cost. It made it necessary that the Son should pass through Samaria, pass through the trials, pass through the cross, pass through death, pass through your wrath on our behalf. Thank you for grace. God, keep our minds fixated on what grace means in our lives as we go from this place this morning. May we see constant examples of your grace in our lives and pause and stop and thank you for it. Give us plenty of reason to worship you this week as we see your grace in so many ways. We praise you. We thank you. We offer all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.